I'm going to tell you something, Greg. Yeah, what? The other day, I had a long-sliced beer, and it was delicious. Isn't that a local beer? That is brewed in the east end of Toronto. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite kind? Oh, I like the Loose Lips Lager. Oh, delicious. I love uh, alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love that? <laughs> right? Wonderful. Beer. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Long Slice. Hi there, this is Greg Legro, And this is Jamie Dew. Of Fully and Completely. Um, You're listening to... <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fully and Completely, a bi-weekly podcast where sometimes we have really interesting guests. Today is one of those days. Hey, it's Jamie here and Greg will be joining us in the episode. I'm just recording the preamble here. Today's guest, I'm really excited to just get into the episode because today's guest is author, blogger, but, but most famously a radio legend. He is Alan Cross, and we sat with him to talk about the Tragically Hip for a little while. We're going to get into that interview and listen to a few great live hip tracks throughout this session. So buckle up and get ready. This is Hipsteries with Alan Cross. Enjoy.
So where do we start? Where do where do you start when you've got somebody that's been talking about the history of music since 1993? <laughs> right? Well, actually, before that, you know, I was doing other things, not quite as formal, but I've been doing, you know, been fascinated with music history since since I started doing this in 1981. Mm -hmm. Oh wow! So so start at the start then. Uh, from where? How? Hmm. Well, I mean, just I, tell I, us about you. Okay. Tell us about... Um... My grandmother gave me a radio when I was six. I became fascinated with all these voices coming from somewhere. I thought it would be a really cool thing to do for a living. I forced my dad to take me on visits and tours of radio stations. Huh. By the time I got to high school, I decided that I wanted to do something in radio, but I wanted to be a news person, a journalist, a foreign correspondent or something like that. So when I got to university, I took all the appropriate courses like history and political science and French and sociology, and I got a job uh, one hour a week at the campus radio station. This is at the University of Winnipeg. Uh, while still at university, I managed to get a job at a startup radio station, which was quite literally a 5,000-watt operation in the middle of a wheat field across from a mental health center. Oh. And uh, I got to do some news and some sports and a little bit of reporting, as well as playing records and talking about them on the radio. Uh, in 83, when I graduated from university, I found a job in Kenora, Ontario, where the news director was apparently going to quit. And the guy in charge of the stadio, uh, station said, just hang in there. He's going to quit. He's going to vacate this position. Then you can have it. Meanwhile, I needed to be on the radio playing records and talking about music. Hmm. So he did quit, and I got to be the news director at this 1200 or 1000 watt AM radio station for 23 days. And I hated every second of it. <laughs> Absolutely despised it. So I went through this existential crisis for about three weeks. Uh, you know, my entire life had been leading up to being a news person. And when I finally got to be a news person, I hated it. Uh -huh. But fortunately, I had applied to another radio station in Western Manitoba and they needed somebody almost immediately. So I left. Kenora, Ontario, so fast that my landlord sent the sheriff after me for non-payment of rent. Wow. That's true. So that was uh, 93, or 83, and I have been playing records and talking about music on the radio ever since. Wow. So at what point, at what point do you get to Toronto and... Um, Start working with CFNY. It was 86. I was working in Winnipeg at the time, and I had a fight with my boss, decided that I didn't want to work with him anymore. I sent out three resumes and demo tapes. I received no response from the first two, and uh, I got a call to CFNY, and I was hired five days later. Hmm. Uh, and I started doing overnights, then I moved to middays, then I moved to afternoons, and then they had a restructuring, and I was severed and then brought back on as a contract person to do weekend mornings, as well as this new program called The Ongoing History of New Music. Terrible name for a show. Uh, <laughs> but the, I was assigned, and it, I didn't want to do it. The guy says, general manager and the program director at the time says, well, if you don't, you're fired. Mm. We'll find somebody else to do it. And I just got married, and I just built my house, and I thought, well, I better make lemonade out of these lemons. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And after exactly one week, they stopped paying attention to me, and they allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do with this program. And it spawned since, you know, four books and a bunch of, you know, 841 episodes, and somewhere around 7,000 one-minute daily features, oh, wow. and... A whole bunch of other things. I mean, yeah. it really, you know, it should not work. 
you know, I play a lot of obscure music. I play, I talk too much. I never mention the name of the radio station when I'm doing the show. <laughs> it breaks every rule, but for whatever reason, you know, 840 odd episodes and 25 years later, I'm still doing it and it's what I've been known for. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of the appeal of it, though. It didn't feel like anything else on the radio. Uh, well, no, and and you know, again, it breaks all the rules. And it, you know, any consultant will tell you that something like this should not work, and you should get rid of it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, yet it continues to work, and I have people coming up to me saying, "You know, I've been listening to you all my life, uh, and now it's a podcast, and it's got three and a half million downloads in eighteen months. Mm-hmm. So something's." I just don't question it. I just keep doing it. Yeah, well, thank Which you. Which is good because I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of portable skills apparently. <laughs> so how much, uh, as as a you know, uh, an expert on music, if I, I can call you that. I've how, never called myself an expert on music sure. because uh, I've met real experts and they know a lot more than okay, I do. Fair enough. An enthusiast of music. There you let's go. Say. Uh, how much of that was cultivated while you were doing this, or were you oh, a lot of like it. prior to uh, getting you know? The, the, well, this I was always, I was always obviously curious. interested. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, I had a, a record collection starting when I was twelve. Right. Okay. And I became the nerdy kid with the record collection that would yeah. play at school dances and parties and whatever. Nice, and that nice. was my only way that I got to go to school dances and parties because yeah. I had the records. Uh, and then it's been a it's been a since I started doing this, it's become a lifestyle where I'm always mm. looking for stuff to talk about, and right. looking to analyze certain things, talk to certain people, and right. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I think the show, yeah. uh, like it being, you know. Unconventional for radio, maybe its timing as well was perfect. And the, well, you know, the, the, that period of the '90s, everyone was sort of pushing back. Well, on I got really pump. lucky because the thinking was under new management. The radio station wasn't sure what sort of direction they were going to take musically, mm-hmm. and they looked around. They oh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. Oh, okay. Well, this this thing seems to be happening. Yeah. Uh, but what we need to do is, if we're going to continue to play this music and Espouse this lifestyle, we're going to need somebody to provide context to the music that we're playing. Mm-hmm. That would mean a weekly documentary that would talk about this music and where it came from. And they looked around and they found one person on staff with a history degree, me, and they said, It's you. <laughs> and, you know, again, so lucky because this program started at the right time in the right place. And if you were to try to do it today, you would have, you know, this is pre-internet, this is pre-streaming, this is mm-hmm. pre-email even, really. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, I, I, it, the, the timing was very fortuitous. Yeah. Even even three years later, it might not have been able to catch on. Sure. It's interesting that you say, those the bands that you just mentioned, you mentioned Pearl Jam, you mentioned Alice in Chains and, and Nirvana. We're here talking about the Tragically Hip. Mm. You were working for a station that was focused on alternative music. Yes. And at the time they made that that change, you're you're looking at fully completely being. Well, a, 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 we were aware of the tragically hip from that first EP. Okay. Because again, we at that time had to play thirty percent Canadian content. Of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had heard about this band from Kingston. They were playing these bars. They played this grinding sort of blues stuff. They had this weirdo front man who often went off on these weird tangents. And after the, uh, leading up to the first EP, we knew about a bidding war that MCA eventually won. And then uh, Up to Here comes out. And it's like loaded with hits. 
And it never really stopped for the Tragically Hip after that point. Mm-hmm. So we were, this would be 80, really 87 when we at CFNY, still known as CFNY back then, sunk our teeth into the Tragically Hip or they sunk our teeth in, their teeth into us. And it never really stopped until, well, it didn't stop.
So they were this band from Kingston that were, you know, a grinding blues-based rock band. But you made certain exceptions and allowances for that 30% CanCon. And while you wouldn't play, you know, Honeymoon Suite or Svengali, there was something left of center enough about the Tragically Hip that they qualified. The other thing was that because we adopted them so early, they became identified with, with us. Mm-hmm. So we would have, like, the uh, CFMY Christmas party, uh, the Tragically Hip would play it. And they, they for, for a while, sort of became, you know, almost our house band. Them and the Bare Naked Ladies. We would have an event, and the Tragically Hit would perform at it. Um, you know, we were in a, a radio station band. I can't remember what we were called, but we opened for the Hip at oh, wow. uh, oh, a place on the Danforth called the Spectrum for mm. in a Christmas party one year. Um, then we had our Molson Park shows, and Hip played those Molson Park shows a whole whack of times. Yeah, for sure. And you know, there were some Edge Fests featuring the Tragically Hip. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we were, they weren't exclusive to us. I mean, other radio stations. But it felt like it. It did feel like it. Um, there was a certain, it felt like there was a certain loyalty or a certain kinship that the band had with us. I mean, they would do stuff with other radio stations. Of course, you have to. But we seemed to have the inside scoop on the relationship. Mm-hmm. And it lasted, a, you know, right right to the end because even when the band was between albums you know Robbie Baker would come in or or, or um, we'd hear from Gordon one of his solo albums or you know something like that would happen I guess this long standing relationship would be easily where you wind up writing the liner notes for the anniversary edition yeah completely. that was that was an interesting thing um uh, back in the early days of the Hips relationship with CFNY, we had a music director named Ira Hamilton. Uh, Ira went on to work for Polydor. Polydor went to become part of Universal Music. He worked his way up the chain, and he is now the VP of Catalog for Universal Music Canada. Uh, part of his job is to exploit uh, catalog material, old material for reissues or whatever else, and fully completely came up for an anniversary and they wanted to do a box set. I mean, it's it's probably, no, it is the hip, the best hip album. And they wanted to do something uh, really cool. So they talked to the Tragically Hip's management, uh, Bernie Breen and, and company, and said, well, this is what we want to do. Uh, what do you think about Alan doing the liner notes? And they said, great. So how are we going to do this? I said, well, invite him over to the office and let him play in the hip archives. So... There were a couple of days where I went over to their place, which is actually not too far from here. Oh, yeah. And they had all these banker's boxes. And in these banker's boxes were uh, tour programs, newspaper clippings, magazine articles, you name it, all from the fully, completely era. I mean, you know, the year before to the year after. Mm -hmm. And they were all you know, wonderfully cataloged and they were in, you know, plastic bags so you could sort through them very carefully. They were dated and organized. And uh, so I, I went through all these banker's boxes and this, because they, apparently they saved everything. That's amazing. <laughs> everything. <laughs> so if, if one of the guys, you know, is it going to be Robbie? Maybe he says he is. Uh, if they ever get around to writing a book, 
or you know a coffee table book. I mean, there is stuff, right? You know, photos and interviews, and not just printed interviews, but video and audio. It's just insane. So um, I had a chance to go through all that stuff, and we decided on a format. And I spent about a month mm-hmm. um, writing the liner notes, going back and forth, getting comments from from everybody in the band, including you know an oral history of, of the whole thing. Right. And uh, that's that's what got got released. Hmm. That's amazing. And that's just the one album. Yeah. God, I mean, how so many they have do they have this kind of collection for, for fifteen albums? Everything. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, this. Uh, I mean, we're sitting in this room here. Um, how many bankers' boxes would there have been? Forty. Wow. Holy. Oh my God. All full. Wow. It's like their Graceland. Just <laughs> four, fully completely. Wow. Mm. Wow. So did you get? Did you get through everything? Even. I yes, I did. Uh, but there a was tour. a lot of stuff that I couldn't use because. Uh, there's only so much space in because <laughs> when you do a box set, it has to be economically feasible. So mm-hmm. you can only, you know, it thinks how big is the box set going to be? You know, what's how what's the packaging going to be like? What's the booklet going to be like? What's the paper stock going to be like? What's you know, how many color photographs do you want? How many black and white photographs? All these things go into determining the retail sales price mm-hmm. of of the box set. And with the hip, I mean, we could have had, we could have written a book, like literally a 300-page book on the album, but we had a price point, I think it was forty nine ninety five or fifty nine ninety five. dollars mm-hmm. That's all we had time room for. And uh, again, if somebody ever decides to do the big coffee table book, uh, yeah. it's going to be a very big yeah. coffee table book. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to need a bigger volumes. coffee table. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... When you were talking about fully completely there a minute ago, you you paused for a second. You said it might be. Now it is. No, it is the best. That that's the best record in my what, opinion. What makes it the best record? It's the most consistent record from front to back. I mean, it's loaded with hits. There are very few dogs on that record. Uh, it is truly a. It's it's the band at their peak. It really is. What's their one? The third album, fourth album? Mm-hmm. What is uh, it? Third, yeah, third, third studio third. record. So yeah. so they they have the, the EP. They have up to here. They have Road Apples, and they have this. And uh, you can see, you know, and we were right in the thick of things, and you, you could see the band evolve and make these creative and career leaps between the albums. I mean, again, the first two records, they're opening, you know, they're, they're, they're a house band for a radio station. Mm-hmm. Sec- and they're, they're playing you know, the Molson Canadian tent at the CNE right, right. Uh, for a bunch of people in a beer garden, essentially. Second album comes out, and it's like, okay, you know, more videos on it, much music, more hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something to this band. Gord gets more Gord, if you right. know what I mean. Uh, by the time we get to the third album, uh, you know, Gord is fully Gord. Yeah. He's burning his boots on stage, and the band is super, <laughs> super tight. And uh, the songs, I mean, it starts with, what does it start with? Uh, Courage? Uh, mm-hmm. It just goes from there. And it's it's a fantastically strong record that will stand up in Canadian rock and roll history for decades. It couldn't come at a worse time.
There is an interesting thing that's happening in Canadian music in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. We had, there was no Canadian music industry to speak of before the CanCon rules came in in 1971. Right. That was not only a creative strategy designed to force the United States back over the border so we wouldn't become swamped with American and, and British culture, right. but it was also an industrial strategy. We didn't have any recording studios. We didn't have any producers. We didn't have mm-hmm. any managers and promoters and venues and you know all the things that would be required to have a first-class, uh, first-world music, domestic music industry. And through the next 20 years, it was, it was pretty awful. Uh, we had a lot of substandard stuff that made it on the radio that shouldn't have. Uh-huh. And again, the rule was 30% of your stuff, of your playlist, had to be of Canadian origin. Yeah. Now, we did have exceptions. There was Rush and Neil Young sure, and sure. Joni Mitchell and Gordon Lightfoot and April Wine and Triumph and Backmanton Overdrive and the Guess Who. But there was a, that, that was the cream of the crop. There was a lot of stuff that really needed more development. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, it ended up on the radio anyway. Sure. And it was a pretty painful time as we learned to be, we learned to have our own music industry. And also, we learned to love the music that was being produced in Canada. For mm-hmm. a while, the idea was, well, it's legislated. You have to play it. It can't be that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canadian music was looked at something that you had to do, not that it was worthy of support. But by the time we get to about 87, 88, 89, 
there are a series of bands, Pursuit of Happiness, Bare Naked Ladies, and The Tragically Hip, that all of a sudden start generating some kind of nationalistic pride in homegrown product. Mm -hmm. Then we get to the explosion of alternative music in 1991 and 1992. Mm -hmm. And these bands, formerly indie bands, you know, Pursuit of Happiness began their success as an indie band. Yeah. Tragic Clips' first EP was an indie band, indie EP. Bare Naked Ladies were famous for the yellow yeah, tape the yellow, and the pink yeah. tape. Uh, and ninety-one, ninety-two, there was a sea change where Generation X came in. And they were all about rebuilding the current music scene in their own image. Mm -hmm. So all that old stuff, Zeppelin, Beatles, Stones, Skinner, uh, that was just shoved aside. This is music that speaks to us and our demands, our needs, our wants, our wishes, our fears, our ambitions. And we are going to start to embrace these bands. Again, much music, very important part because mm -hmm. for the first while, when they signed on in 84, that was the first time that, you know, outside of the CBC, which really wasn't into this kind of music, this was a, a kid in St. John's, Newfoundland, could participate in the same musical culture as a kid in, Van in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Or a kid in Whitehorse had now something in common musically, culturally, with somebody in Toronto. And they had to play 30% Cancun too, so yeah. a lot of Tragically Hip ended up on Much Music, and that helped build this nationalistic fervor for domestically produced music. I mean, one of the definitions of a Canadian is that it's Americans with health control and... Uh, uh, one of the definitions of a, being a Canadian is somebody with um, health care and gun control. Mm -hmm. And we identify ourselves as, in some cases, as not Americans. Right. And one of the ways we began to really identify, ourself, identify ourselves as not Americans is by the music that we embraced. Right. So at that time, everything had become matured. We had the Bare Naked Ladies, we had the Hip, we had I Mother Earth, we had Our Lady Peace, we had Sloan. We had this huge upwelling of these new young bands. Oh yeah, the CanCon thing was the big, whole, really big. The whole Can Rock Revolution. Yeah. And the Hip was at the front of that. And the more successful the Hip became domestically, and oddly enough, the more they were rejected by the United States, oh, sure the more they became ours. Mm -hmm. And they went from being the house band of this radio station to being the house band of an entire country. Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. uh, I mean, we don't have to go through, you know, what they meant to Canada uh, in, the, in the ensuing decades. Mm -hmm. So a lot, again, it's, it's a lot of things happened. A lot of things had to happen for the hip to become what the hip became. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the effect of Can, CanCon on that, just having the, the constant... Uh, exposure to the Canadian sound and uh, developing a Canadian sound. Yes. We were talking about that with Chris Jericho, which is a weird sentence to say, but it is. Uh, and it's it, there is a, a kind of a, a, partic a particular quirk to Canadian uh, rock, particularly in that time period. I can't really put my finger no, on it. There, there's a uniqueness to it that you can weirdly, sort of feel, right? Weirdly, you. Yes. And I've never been able to quite figure out what yeah, it is. Yeah, it's elusive. You know. Some but of the New Zealand pop bands have like a thing to them. There is a thing. You know. I don't know whether it's the subject matter. I don't know if it's the chord changes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the arrangements or the production. But if you put a Canadian band from that era 
and blind taste it, taste test it with a band from another country, mm-hmm. you have a sixty percent chance of picking up the Canadian band For just sure. based on the song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. That was bonkers. Yeah, but there's a thing. We have a, a sound. There, there was a sound. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure what it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could you know? What's the Our Lady Peace sound? I I don't know. But you listen to them and you go, oh, they got to be from Canada. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't all like it's not really the, the genres don't all line. But even like with the big Seattle bands, they don't really sound alike. But uh, you could you know, tell. You can tell they're from the same you know DNA. Yeah. Or and whatever. if they weren't from Seattle, they should be. Yeah. You know, for example, <laughs> yeah. you listen to Stone Temple Pilots. They're yeah. from San Diego. Oh, right. you know, they should have been absolutely from mm-hmm. from, from Seattle. Example. You listen to certain Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, yeah, they're from Seattle. And again, you know, they were all. That's how all these these bands that weren't from the Pacific Northwest became lumped into the whole grunge thing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like the same thing with Canada. It's it's like all these these bands came out and they were lumped into the alternative thing, even though they, I mean, you know, Grapes of Wrath, for example. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. thinking Grapes of Wrath oh, and 5440. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Don't really sound alternative. No. But because of when they came out and the kind of support they got and where that support came from, yeah, we'll include them. Mm-hmm. It's it's and again it was this embracement and we you know we had we had you know the hip had another roadside attraction we had Edgefest uh, Our Lady Peace had Somersault um, Sarah McLaughlin came out with Lilith Fair these were all traveling Canadian music festivals that were predominantly in many ways uh, featuring Canadian content or featured mm-hmm. at least a lot of Canadian content oh, yeah. and people went to these things by the tens of thousands yeah why do you think it was that they, like, other than what we just discussed with the Canadian sound sort of thing, what what's the deal? Like, why were they never giant down there? Um, it doesn't matter. That's the answer. But if you want to get a little bit more academic about it, bad timing, um, yeah. bad deals, bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could be something as simple as, you know, they had a deal with Atlantic Records at one point, and then I think it was, I think they had that deal at the time that Atlantic... Uh, got rid of a lot of their A&R people, including the A&R person that was responsible for the hip. Huh. And in record company culture, if a band is left over from a bot guy that an A&R guy got fired, they're poison, and nobody wants to touch them because, well, obviously, that was part of a losing career strategy on the part of this guy. So right. uh, all of a sudden, they fall in terms of priority when it comes to promotion and marketing. Um, and then, you know, you look at the Tragically Hip when they appeared on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Uh, they chose to go with uh, Nautical Disaster and Grace 2, mm-hmm. even though, you know, Dan Aykroyd had been pulling and pulling and pulling for them to be on the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, those two great songs. Yeah, but, yeah. We man, were, you know, we should just they... Just talking about this. Should they have not gone with, with you know, Blow It High Dough or, mm-hmm. or, or uh, New Orleans is Sinking? Yeah, you yeah. know, that they could have just blown that audience away. But... They came across as 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 Dan Aykroyd's pets, mm-hmm. and I, you wonder what would have happened had they blown the audience away with one of those big grinding rockers, yeah. Instead of, you know, the very poetic and very powerful Grace Two and Nautical Disaster. Yeah. I mean, incredible songs, songs, but that's fine. you know that's just uh, you had two songs, yeah, <laughs> two songs. That's all you had to do is just. <laughs> <laughs> so. They they you know, they were always huge in the border towns like sure. you know Buffalo Cleveland um, places along uh, you know the the Quebec border they mm-hmm. were they were huge. We were wondering as well how much of it was a detriment that they were always presented as Canada's 
the tragically hip. Well, that's, like, see, no one else had to, was forced to carry that banner. Well, yeah, because or two, was obliged to. Two things there. Number one, we go back to the idea of the legislated hit. Mm-hmm. So you would, you know, remember you're dealing with the largest music market in the world, mm-hmm. and the competition is extremely fierce. You present a band to somebody at an American label, and they'll go, "Okay, tell me, tell us about them." And they'll say, well, uh, they're from Canada. Oh, okay, yeah, well, they have this Canadian content thing. They have to be on the radio, so they have to be, you know, stars. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't earn it. Right. They, 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 the government made them hits. That's socialism. You know, that was a real problem. Wow, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the other issue was, and to your point, the Tragically Hip sings about a lot of Canadian things. Right. And... America believes that the world ends at their borders Mm -hmm. unless you're the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or maybe a handful of other British bands. Otherwise, you know, we invented rock and roll. Don't you be telling us something about another part of the world that we find weird and scary, Mm -hmm. especially you people up north with your health care and your disdain for guns. So it was, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of things that, that conspired against the hip also didn't want to relocate. Now, if you look at people like Drake, if you look at people like uh, Justin Bieber, to be honest, very few, if any, Canadian rock bands have ever broken out globally from Canada. They have had to be um, signed to and often relocate to mm-hmm. an American, the American version of the, re- of, the uh, of the record label, or in America itself. Right. Uh, the only person that I can really think breaking out globally, and she did have some help from other territories, is Celine Dion. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but you know, you gotta. That's that's yeah, how Neil, Neil Young wouldn't stay inside, and that's no, how, you know. no. Joni Mitchell wouldn't stay, yeah. and and um, it what it took. You know, the Bare Naked Ladies did not break from Canada. Mm-hmm. Sarah McLaughlin did not break from Canada. They stayed here. But they had American deals, right? And they were uh, promoted agnostically. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody drew a lot of attention to their Canadianness. Well, this is the thing, yeah. yeah. So it's I think a, I, it was inescapable at the hit. It was. I was like, this is our best, so take our best. Yeah. Like, well, what, what, okay, what's this fifty mission camp? And who's Bill Barilko? What are they yeah. talking about winning the cup? <laughs> uh, you know, that's completely lost on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I think I like that with all that content being there. I think with fully, completely, and like why it might be their best album, or maybe their most important. I'll say because I don't know if it's my favorite, but okay. maybe their most important. One thing we talked about was courage itself, having Hugh McLennan in the title. Yeah, again, and, you and know, like nobody knows who that is. Well, but, that, that's the point. Or if they do, they'll be like, "Well, what's going on here?" But I, but <laughs> the fact that Hugh McLennan does write about, he made a, a conscious decision to write about his surroundings and his and the two uh, solitudes and everything that goes along yeah, with, yeah. with and, his. It's like a mission statement, right? right. For for Gord at that point, because this is, he, as you said, he's fully Gord now. The, yeah. the lyrics are in a different place than they were in Road Apples, and in a much different place than they were from the EP. And the Canadianism, it's not really, it's not just cute stuff. There's a lot of, like, deep stories going on here and a lot of, uh, you know, inside baseball, too. There's things people don't really understand. Well, like a pigeon camera. camera. Like, what yeah, are we yeah, talking about? Absolutely. Huh? But it shifts it, you know. So I think that, and they, and they, and they don't go and play the big hits on Saturday Night Live because I think there was a artistic drive, maybe, to be true to what, what they set out to yeah, be at some and point. Yeah, that, right? was, that was the thing after... From fully completely forward, it was okay. You know, we could write a we could write a thousand New Orleans is sinking, right? But you know, Gord was into his poetry and Al Purdy and this this idea of of identity mm-hmm. uh, and art, 
um, and and they didn't want to repeat themselves. They mm -hmm. wanted to grow as artists. If and and they knew and they were right, at least for a number of years, that their fans would go along with them. Mm -hmm. The other thing about the hip is that they were very Canadian. In they were singing about what they knew, mm -hmm. and. Up until they came along, and I, there's probably a few exceptions, but up until they came along, singing about Canada was considered to be cheesy. Sure. We didn't do that in no. this country. H Canadian history was looked like looked at like broccoli. I mean, <laughs> nobody really liked it. It was good for you. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, when it came to the radio, 30% of your plate had to be broccoli, <laughs> and you'll learn to like the broccoli. And it doesn't matter if you like the broccoli, you're going to get the broccoli anyway. But when the hip comes along, they don't sound like one of those, you know, Canadian wildlife minutes, you know, mm -hmm. talking about the caribou or the, you know, prairie groundhog. He's, you know, Gord talks about Hugh McLennan. Hugh talks about, you know, the 100th Meridian, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, runs through basically Manitoba. Uh, they talk about, you know, he, he's, he's singing about, you know, Bob Cajun and, 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 and Bill Barilko and, you know, all these different things that um, are very Canadian in, in origin. I mean, you could quite easily create a curriculum for high school or university whereby you study Canadian history and geography through Tragically Hip Lyrics. 100%. And if somebody hasn't done that, they should. But mm -hmm. you can. I mean, they, they you know, you, you think about the, the activism with ClickHot Sound, and you think about um, all the, the little towns that they mention. And, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, come to... The only reason Gore came up with Bob Cajun, because he was looking for a word yeah. with Constellation, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, and they, they talk about, you know, hockey, mm -hmm. you know, um, they talk, you know, you go watch, watch, you know, it's a Courage video with Gord wearing the Boston the Bruins. Bruins. Yeah, yeah, and right. then you realize that his, his godfather is Harry Sinden of, of the Boston Bruins, who, who used to be, who was the GM of Team Canada 72. And yeah. it's like, you know, it's just, it was non-forced, authentic and a deeply held belief that we are Canadian and we're not going to be shy about showing that. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to be in your face. It's not going to be, you know, Canada, Canada. No, it isn't. It yeah, they, is. really, they really had a disdain for that, in fact. Well, right? they did, yeah. yeah. They did. They, you know, just say, hey, you know what? Back off, settle yeah. down, yeah. and let's just do it, you know, subtly, classily. Is that a word? I like uh, it now. I'm gonna go with and and uh, and and with, I don't want to say with with restraint, but with respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think you're I think you're right. I was at the uh, August long weekend show. Where oh sorry, the Canada Day long weekend show in Barrie in '94, mm. when Danny Lenoir had went on right before uh, yeah. the tragically hip, and he got bottles thrown at him and. And hipped, and you know all See, the rest of it. And at that, by that point, the hip were were also attracting the rockheads. Yeah, yeah. There, there was, uh, yeah. That was I remember that. And you know, Daniel Lanois with you know tremendous producer, fantastic musician. Mm -hmm. You know, and I guess that was around the time of the Acadie album. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. you know, French Canadian sort of you know acoustic stuff. <laughs> 
And, and, and then you know that the, the Lugans are there with waiting for the hip to come on so they can scream, you know, and I don't want to swim. Yeah. <laughs> you know? With a Canadian flag cape on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, Gord let them have it that day. Uh, I remember him saying, you guys think this is Canada Day. It's Friday, you know? Um, <laughs> just to just to really dig it in. And, yeah. And, um, yeah, it was an interesting show because they, they were previewing Day for Night as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a very different record, but the record wasn't out yet, and they, they probably played half of their set wow, was, they, was Day for Night I, I remember that, and, and I remember thinking... That's kind of slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here's another slow song. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, again, we come back to Nautical Disaster and, and That's Grace right. 2. And I would say that, that Grace 2 is one of my favorite hip songs of all time. Mm-hmm. But it was a bit of a slow burn. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen from Kingston, Ontario, Canada, home of Kirk Muller, Walter Frank High, and me, it is my honor to introduce to America my friends that tragically hit.
station and uh oh this is one of those slow ones they yeah. did mm-hmm. after after how many singles well i mean not even singles but how many songs did you guys play off fully like like you could play virtually anything off the record right yeah, yeah. yeah i bet you i think there were four songs that we didn't that's, well how many songs were there 13 bonkers. There was 13 songs i don't mm-hmm. think we played I, four I, pigeon camera didn't make it uh i know for a fact but I would have to look at the track. But it's it's, it's like uh, that's the way it's solid record. It's like yeah, it's like hysteria in the sense that it's just single after single after single yeah, after yeah. single. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't hype either. Uh, remember that this was an era, and I think this happened with fully completely, where the only way that you could get music was at the record store, mm-hmm. and records were released on Tuesdays back mm-hmm. then, and hey, the Tragically Hip album is coming out on such and such a date. I don't remember when it was. But uh, HMV is going to open its doors at 12.01 a.m. on Tuesday so it can start legally selling uh, the Tragically Hip record. And you would find hundreds of people Mm -hmm. lined up on the sidewalk outside record stores so they could be the first to hand 20 bucks to the cashier and have a copy of that album. Mm -hmm. I, I don't recall any other Canadian rock band uh, encourage uh, where where the record stores would stay open. And, or no, would open I remember them open. doing that for Metallica and like a couple other things. But Canadian ones? But not a chance. Not a chance. Yeah, yeah. No. I lived right by the uh, Young Street HMV. I spent all of my free time in there. Um, yeah, I can't. I, there's a couple of, I think maybe, you know, once every couple of years they do that for somebody, like a yeah. huge release. Yeah, and they, they did it for all the hip records. Uh, yeah. From from fully completely forward, I think. Yeah, yeah. Dave Renate is the first one I remember. I, I went to it, and probably five weeks after that, it was Pearl Jam. So, to me, you know, having having the Tragically Hip and Pearl Jam midnight releases, you know, well, and, it was and, like they were on the same exactly. They were, they were and, on the exact same level, and mm-hmm. that was how they were treated. Uh, they were treated at the same level as the big alternative bands in the U.S. They were treated at the same level as Oasis and Blur. Mm-hmm. They were treated as world-class superstars that just happened to be ours. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if we were talking about this, I think, but they really, they were, 
almost accidentally perfect for what was going on in that 90s push of the alternative yep. stuff. Like the first single from Philly Completely is Locked in the Trunk of a Car, which is maybe the weirdest single on there, right? Because it's, well, what the hell is going on in that song? <laughs> yeah. well, you know, and, and the video, you know, and the strange video. But it was perfect. It was pitch perfect for that well, Because we're talking about the, the, the Bernardo situation. Yeah, yeah, After, yeah. You know, and, and then, you know, David Milgar, mm-hmm. you know, with, with, uh, with Wheat Kings. Uh, and, and 38, well, 38 years old is before that. But, uh, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that was happening in Canadian culture at the time that seemed to match up with some of the songs. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the Leafs still hadn't won a cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They've been keeping that song relevant for a while. For a long time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. There there were some things, you know, art was imitating life, life was imitating art. Mm-hmm. And, and they were in between. That was perfect soundtrack for the times. Still is. Do you have any any favorite Tragical Hip stories? or? Well, I there was one, a couple. Um, I, uh, when, oh, was Gord's... Was it Coke Machine Glow, or was it the next record? Anyway, I got a chance to uh, interview Gord on the release of one of his albums, and he arrived uh, early for the interview, which was weird, because <laughs> no rock stars arrive early for interviews, except Gord Downey and Kid Rock. <laughs> swear to God. Uh, and he, I said, Gord, I'm sorry, i, I got to finish up this other interview first. Would you, would you sorry, can, I have, can you wait a little bit? And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, not a problem. I'm just going to go down to Starbucks and get a coffee. Goes, okay, great. Goes, Would you like some? Yeah. Um, uh, give me a, a, a latte with a little bit of sweetener. Okay. Uh, what size? Uh, large. Okay. Be back in a minute. And he leaves. Did I just send Gord Downey out to fetch me coffee <laughs> at Starbucks? <laughs> and when, I came, when he came back, he says, here's your coffee. And you, you know, take a sip, make sure it's got enough sweetener in it. <laughs> I mean, he was just a gentleman. You know, he's just fantastic. What a prince. And then um, the Tragically Hip own a piece of a cannabis company called New Strike, right. uh, Up Cannabis. And uh, they had, this was in May of this past year, they had a, an event uh, for the company at the bathhouse. Mm-hmm. And so I got to go to Kingston. And I uh, oh. went to this event, uh, and I got a tour through the house. Uh, at the back of the house is a rehearsal area where the band, if you saw the uh, long-time run documentary, you see the, the beginning where the band is Gord struggling to get back into the game, rehearsing for the final tour. Mm-hmm. That's the room at the back of the bathhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back in there, there is the microphone stand from the final hip show. Uh, on the floor is the set list from that final hip show in Kingston and Gord's Boots. Oh, man. In sort oh, of a... wow. Yeah. In sort of a, like a little little shrine to, to Gord. And uh, I got to walk through the studio and um, you saw where they recorded all this stuff. And there was, the bathhouse is a live workplace. So there's a there's a pool table and bedrooms and a swimming pool and a pitch and putt and a basketball court and a, they have a hockey rink. And, you know, it's, it's, it's where you can actually go and set up and record an album over a extended period of time right. there's also a big library and uh in the big li- in the library is is this is, is what you see um uh the the yellow contraption on the front of uh phantom power uh-huh. oh just sitting on the shelf oh wow because and it's the 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 album cover is 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 um uh photoshopped a little bit but that actual thing 
before the Photoshop. It's just sitting on the shelf. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And That's what wild. was really cool is like next to it, on the shelf, at the bathhouse, the Tragically Hips Work Live Studio, uh, was one of my books. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so it's like this, okay. <laughs> This is cool. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that was that was a really cool feeling to see yeah, that. I bet. Wow. So in terms of in terms of the music, uh, I'm not sure if you got the the email that I said, you know, just in, uh, a couple songs. You've mentioned Grace 2 as a as a popular, mm-hmm. you know, or not a popular, but one of your favorite tracks. What are some other tracks that you like and, and why? Uh, I like Blow It High Doe. Um <sighs> I, okay, in, in this order, um, you don't have to rank them. Uh, yeah, there's so many songs from that first record too. Not the EP, but up to here mm-hmm. that I really, really it like. Rock solid as well. You know, again, this I can't separate the songs from see, from the band and seeing the band mm-hmm. and playing the band on the radio. Um, I remember playing, you know. Um, New Orleans is sinking for the first time on the radio. Wow. And, and thinking, okay, this is really kind of cool. It's a little bit above the normal standard for mm-hmm. what we would see from a band with a debut record. Um, I also remember, uh, you know, playing Little Bones for the first time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Can you imagine if Dan Aykroyd introduces them on Saturday Night Live and they start, you know, with again? that? Again? Oh, yeah.
just a little tired I just look at this body of work and think. Oh, there's so much to choose from. Well, thing. yeah. Because it just kept, the, the, they kept releasing above quality stuff. Right. When it should have been just, let's just call it a day and keep writing the well, same thing over and over. Right. They never did that. And, then, and they know. did it, it, the older they got, the less success that they had. Mm-hmm. Because the songs were much, they were softer, they were more complicated, they were more acoustic mm-hmm. than what we saw with the first four or five albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last great hip album would have been Phantom Power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm, I even remember when Poets was the first single. Yeah. And thinking, close. <laughs> but, but of course, it ended up becoming a hit, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a while where the hip, and I can't remember who told me this, but it was one of the members of the band who said, the hip is like a shiny classic convertible that you leave in the garage and only bring out for special occasions mm-hmm. when the time is right. And that would have been, you know, in the 2000s sometimes mm-hmm. when everybody was off doing their own things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow that righted itself and they realized that, no, you know, we are the Tragically Hip and we should be doing some Tragically Hip records. Yeah. And they, they did until the very end right. after that. Yeah, yeah. At quite a pace. Yeah. Really putting them out. And it's interesting, though, that, that back end of the career, they, those albums aren't particularly similar. There's a lot of, there are softer ones, like We Are the Same as a lighter album, but yeah. World, World Container is a rocker, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and they're using different producers, and, yeah. you know. There's uh, still, uh, after the effort. I love seeing so much well, conviction it's, to the, the I, art, you know. We can go back to the, the, the uh, comparison with Pearl Jam. I mean, mm-hmm. that first Pearl Jam album, has a lot in common with Up to Here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a muscular rockin' record. Yeah. Then we get to Versus, and it still rocks. Yeah, but it's got more of a groove. But almost. it's got a more complicated 
feel to it. More slightly less accessible. Slightly less accessible. And then the next album, and the next album, the next. And by the time we you know get to the end of the two thousand, or the end of the twentieth century, Pearl Jam has distanced themselves from the sound that established them with ten. And we saw the same thing happen with the Tragically Hip. They mm-hmm. had distanced themselves, not because they hated it, but because they wanted to grow as artists and because mm-hmm. they had statements they wanted to make artistically. So they weren't going to go back, and they could have. They could have done it in their sleep, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to because that's not who they were as artists. And they wanted to continue to, and they had earned the right to continue to yeah. explore what they could do as a band. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we, we've seen that time. We see that with you, too. We see that with, with all the, the big bands. We mm-hmm. see that with Radiohead. I mean, you look at Radiohead now versus Radiohead with, you know, the oh, bands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a completely different band. I oh, mean, yeah. even with OK Computer, it's, it's a completely different. Sure. Band. So you cannot stop a band from evolving. Um, however, what you do see with a lot of bands is that the average the average age, the average lifespan of a legendary band can be about seven years. Mm-hmm. We look at the Beatles, 63 to 70. Mm-hmm. We could look at the Clash, 76 to 83, mm-hmm. really. This, this idea that you can burn very, very brightly, but only for so long, and you call it quits before you get too far off script. But then you have U2s and Radioheads and Tragically Hips, you know, bands that have been together for, you know, 25, 30, 35, 40 years in some mm-hmm. cases. And uh, they've, they've, they've evolved in, into a lot of different directions. It just happens, and it should happen, because mm-hmm. otherwise we just get stale. Yeah. Or you end up with the Rolling Stones who keep playing the same songs from 65. Yeah. It's the best album since Some Girls. Yeah. <laughs> Every time they put one out. Well, that's it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, the, what was the last great Rolling Stones record? Some Girls, I think, right? <laughs> or, or we can maybe say Tattoo You. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Because Just because of Start Me Up. Absolutely. Oh, waiting on a friend's on there, that's a, that's a marriage. Again. You know, I got time for that. After that, you know, geez, I really don't want to hear Undercover of the Night, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's got or, that cool video. Or, or, or Harlem Shuffle. I mean, sure. that was, oh, no one was there. No. <laughs> or look at that uh, Dirty Work album cover. It's good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of colors. So that's what? 80, well, Tattoo You was what? 81. 81, yeah. Uh, gee, what, what's the year now? <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of years ago. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of years. I mean, they put out a bunch of records since yeah, then, and yeah. I can't name a single song from any one of those records except uh, Harlem Shuffle, and that was yeah, a cover. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, and I, I, what blows my mind uh, about the hip, when you when you think about that longevity, is they were releasing things at like a furious clip. They were doing a record every two years yep. on the even numbered years mm-hmm. until the last three records, and the last three records I think were like three years apart or something like that. Yeah, yeah, two two and a half, three years. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what other band has done that? You know, yeah. like every two years you've got a record. Now, I I, I guess granted, some American bands are doing probably bigger tours, longer tours, like, you know, more worldwide or whatever. Right. I don't know how else to explain it, but it's not like the material that they were coming out with was, was bad. It no. was, it was solid stuff. And like Greg said, they could have just, you know, they could have phoned it in. Absolutely. Yeah. They, phoned could have, it in. they could have phoned it in, but, but no, they didn't. And they, they bought this old coach house in, in Bath and they outfitted it. They have the, uh, the recording console there is actually from the, 
NBC Studios in Burbank when Johnny Carson. Oh come on! Yeah, That's so there's so this cool. ancient, yeah. this ancient uh, recording console with oh. with all these old tape machines. So they could afford to you know dick around as long as they wanted to because they owned the studio and they lived down the street. Yeah, uh, but you know it's. How cool is that? Yeah, Their yeah. own self-designed studio. Yeah, there's only, you know, Triumph has one with Metalworks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's now a school. Right. Uh, a recording arts school. Um, the Beastie Boys had one in the uh, G-Spa, G-Sun, right? Uh, yeah, and uh, Foo Fighters have one called 606 in Van Nuys. Ah, nice. Um, but, I mean, you know, Foo Fighters make a, you know, they play play, play a show, they get a million and a half bucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't, uh, didn't Dave Grohl purchase some famous... Yeah, there's a uh, documentary board, about right? it. No, he's, yeah. he's got the console from uh, the old Sound City Studios. Right, that's what it is. Yeah, I, yeah. I was there and I touched it. <laughs> really? Oh, yes. wow. Uh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> it's, it, this cr- you know, the, the, the 606 studios are in Van Nuys, California. They're in a weird little neighborhood and across the street is a company that rents porta-potties. <laughs> <laughs> So I pull up to the studio, and there's these these, these pickup trucks with these trailers with uh, portable shitters on the back. <laughs> I say today, nice neighbors. It goes, yeah, well, we never have to go far to go to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're always covered. That's all right. Well, is there anything you want to uh, sort of uh, a summation or anything you want to... I, I, I do want to say this. Uh, for people who are obsessed about the tragically lack of success in the United States, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. It is not a measure of the band's quality or Canadianness that they did not make it. There was a bunch of things that conspired against them that were in many ways not their fault and just let it go. Um, a lot of Canadian bands don't make it in the United States because America believes that they have invented rock and roll and there are very few uh people that can oh. tell them what to do they've got the mm-hmm. patent they've, they've got yeah. essentially yeah. they've got the patent don't you be telling us we rock you don't um but there there are exceptions you know rush being one of them mm-hmm. uh, you know neil young is revered um and you know back with Terror overdrive and guess who sure uh but the hip are unique and it doesn't matter as no. well because we then the very few countries have a tragically hip or anything that we can all okay. have that's so beloved to us, you know? Yeah, and I tried to explain this when, when Gord, when, when the final tour was on and then when Gord died. I got a call, some, I did a lot of interviews about mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. people, you know, would call from the United States and they go, What's going on? What is this tragically hip band? I said, Well, I'll tell you how big this band was. I'll tell you how important they were. On the occasion of their final concert, one third at least one-third of the Canadian population stopped what they were doing and watched the show either on TV at home, Mm -hmm. in a bar with a bunch of other people, Mm -hmm. or in a public place with big screens, Mm -hmm. or online. A third of the population of the country did that. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine that happening in any other country? No. No, not a chance. And the best tweet I saw on the day of Gord's death was Canada closed, death in the family. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that. And again, we'll never see another band like this. No. And the fact that there's a, there's a quote by Dr. Seuss, don't cry that it's over, smile because it happened. Mm-hmm. And we should be so lucky that we were here musically during a time where we were able to see the rise and 
very graceful exit of the tragically hit. Mm-hmm. They didn't burn out and and, and no, no. they went out in a way that we will never see another band exit the the planet. I used to think that another Canadian band did it best, which was the band yeah. with the last waltz in 1976. Yeah. Uh, this was even greater because of the national participation in the whole event. Yeah. It was quite a thing to behold. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know where you go from there. Well, so you can't. I, I mean, yeah. I think we just uh, yeah. mic drop. Yeah, yeah. Well, this gracefully uh, disappears. Well, that's right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, Absolutely honored to have really you. Really cool. Oh, no, you're welcome. Yeah, great, great stuff. So, thank you very much. Do you want to plug plug any of your yeah, stuff? I, I mean, if you want to uh, follow me, uh, it's at Alan Cross A L A N C R O S S on Twitter. Um, I have a website, a journal of musical which I update every single day. And if you want my podcasts, I have two. There's the Ongoing History of New Music podcast, which is a repurposing of the radio show, so you get to catch up. Uh, there's about three and a half million downloads that have happened since we started doing that. And then I have another podcast called Geeks and Beats, geeksandbeats.com, which is uh, all about the intersection of technology and music. Amazing. Awesome. Well, okay. continued success. And uh, Did I say I have no portable skills? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. and Completely is a Modern Superior podcast proudly sponsored by Long Slice Brewery. To rate, review, or subscribe to the show, visit Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or anywhere else you get podcasts. For more information about the show, our guests, or Jamie and Greg, please visit www.fullyandcompletely.ca. To join our Facebook group, visit Facebook and search for Fully and Completely. This episode has been brought to you by the Modern Superior Podcast Network. 